John by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. This is the word of God. shortish reading, but an important one. In case you're wondering about the balloons, um, this is the last day uh, of a month of celebration of 10 years of St. Barnabas. And tonight, at quarter past six, we have a praise and worship service here in the church. Uh, that's why the balloons are here. It's at 6.15. If you're wondering about the slightly curious time, uh, it is because we had to have a little discussion with our friends in the mosque over the way who have a rather loud call to prayer at 6 o'clock. So um, they've assured us that it'll be over by 6.15 and we can proceed uninterrupted. Three years ago, we uh, started a series here in the church in the book of Revelation. And uh, we got as far as the end of chapter 12. We were making excellent progress. We were hoping to finish the book. Uh, but then, of course, COVID struck and everything changed. So uh, this morning, instead of plunging into chapter 13 and uh, the beast and the mark of the beast, uh, which uh, is the excitement next Sunday morning, so do make sure you're here for that, uh, this morning we're doing an introduction to Revelation to help us get our bearings because I, for one, have totally forgotten mine and I needed to remind myself. And uh, next week, God willing, we'll pick up where we left off at the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, if you want to pick up on any of the teaching that we did in the first part of the book, you can find our sermons on the website, www.sbbc.org.za. If you are a podcast person, uh, then please do type in SBBC Sermons, scroll down, and you'll find all the sermons there, and you can listen to them in your car or wherever it is. But uh, can I please encourage you to have a Bible in front of you? You may not be familiar with this as a practice, but I do want to encourage you in it. Please turn to Revelation chapter 1, the last book of the Bible, and we're only looking at those first three verses. If you want a Bible, to just put your hand up, someone will bring it to you. And as we begin, let's ask, as always, for God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would cause us to be blessed by your word today and that you would give us grace to hear it, to want to hear it, and to want to keep it, for the time is near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do people go to church? Why are we here this morning? Uh, for some people, going to church is something that they do occasionally, uh, perhaps at Christmas or Easter. Uh, for other people, going to church makes them feel a bit religious, uh, perhaps a little bit respectable. 
Uh, and then there are people who go to church because they have to. Uh, when I was at school, we had chapel every morning and we had prayers in our boarding houses at night. We didn't enjoy it. We went because we had to. And some people come to church for reasons that have got absolutely nothing to do with religion at all. Uh, perhaps they want to find a husband or a wife. And of course, there are worse places to do that than church. And then, of course, there are people who don't go to church if they can possibly help it. Uh, unbelievers, obviously. Uh, they see absolutely no need for coming to church, except perhaps for the occasional wedding uh, or a funeral. There are also plenty of people who call themselves Christians, and they don't go to church either. They pray, uh, they listen to sermons on the internet or on television, uh, they might even witness to their friends, but they don't go to church. So, why are you and I here this morning? Well, I know why I'm here. I've got to preach the sermon. But why are you here? The, the clue, I think, that helps us answer that question is in the first two verses of Revelation. Look at them with me again, if you will. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in the original, the first word of the book is the word revelation. It's a very important word because it means that what we're going to learn about in this book is something we couldn't possibly know unless God himself revealed it to us uh, in the original language. That is what the word revelation means. What is this revelation all about? Well, it's a revelation about Jesus Christ. Now, that is the purpose of the book. The book of Revelation is telling us things about Jesus Christ we could not possibly find out in any other way. It explains the significance of Jesus Christ to us. Please notice who the revelation is for. Verse 1 says that God gave this book to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, I hope you know that if you're a Christian, you are God's servant. That means revelation has been written for you. But why do we need it? What's so special about it? Well, try thinking about it like this. Uh, imagine that I show you a photograph. Uh, it's a photograph of a smartly dressed young woman and uh, she's standing by the side of the road. And she's got a handbag draped over her shoulder. In the photograph behind her, there's a rather scruffy young man. She can't see him. She doesn't know that he's there. But uh, he's got this kind of desperate expression on his face, and he's reaching out towards her shoulder with the handbag. When you see that picture, what is the first thought that goes through your mind? 
I guess most of us would think, oh no, he's going to steal her handbag. This is a robbery. But then I show you another photograph. It's actually the same situation. Uh, it's the same young woman with the man standing behind her. But this time the photograph zooms out to show you, as it were, the big picture. And now we can see that a massive truck is bearing down on this woman, and it's actually just a few meters away. It was there all the time, but in the first picture we couldn't see it because we didn't have the full picture. But now we do, and we can see that actually the young man isn't trying to steal her handbag at all. He's trying to save her from being hit by the truck. And the point is, you see, that what looked like a robbery was actually a rescue. Now that, I think, is a very helpful way to think about Revelation. The book of Revelation is God's big picture. It gives us the true perspective on everything that's happening in our world today. And it's not what most people think. You see, what we see with our eyes isn't actually the full story. There's something infinitely bigger, infinitely more significant going on behind the scenes. So Revelation, friends, is a really important book, but it's not an easy book. So this morning, I want us to focus on just three features of Revelation to help us navigate our way through it. We're going to consider its method, we're going to look at its relevance, and then at the end we'll say something about its reward. Method, relevance, reward. So firstly then, its method. How does this book reveal its message to us? This is really important, so stay tuned and come with me again to verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known. Now I want you to focus on that little phrase, he made it known. Uh, in some uh, Bible translations, it's rendered as he communicated it by symbols, or um, he sent it and he signified it. So friends, this revelation about Jesus Christ is communicated to us by symbols. And therefore, it's absolutely no surprise at all that everything in the book from chapter 4 all the way through to chapter 21 is visions and pictures and symbols. And that's why you see verse 1 says... The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Because we don't show words. We speak words. But you show pictures and visions. And that's why at the beginning of verse 2, John says that he testifies, can you see it there, to everything he saw. Because John saw wonderful visions and pictures. So here we have a book 
that communicates visually. And the question is why? I mean, after all, the Gospels aren't written that way. Uh, The Apostle Paul didn't write his letters this way. So why is the message of Revelation given to us in symbols? You know, I think we should probably feel quite at home with this because, after all, we're living, aren't we, in a very visual culture. Uh, Every day we take in vast amounts of data and information visually. But why did God use this particular method 2,000 years ago in this particular book? Well, one reason, I think, is that the churches that John is writing to here have gone to sleep. They've gone to sleep spiritually. They've lost perspective. They've started to compromise. And whenever Christians start to compromise and become spiritually lazy, we don't actually want to hear the truth directly. So, uh, if Gillian and I have a disagreement about something, which hardly ever happens, but if it does... And uh, she points out some sin in me, which I'm actually totally unable to deny. I'm uncomfortable admitting it. Now, we're all like that. We don't like to be confronted with our sin directly and articulately. Nobody does. We actually like to rationalize our sin. And most of us are pretty good at it. But symbols, you see, catch us off guard. They have a way of getting to us. And that's what's happening here. Let me give you an example from the text. Look ahead, please, to chapter 2 and verse 20. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. And uh, this is part of a letter to the church in Thyatira, in what we now know as as, uh, Turkey, modern Turkey. And at this church, they were extremely comfortable having a woman called Jezebel doing all the teaching. But she was teaching lies. Now, look at verse 20 with me. This is what Jesus Christ says to that church in Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching... She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, if those aren't your problems, don't let your eyes glaze over. Just stay with me. Because, you see, what she was doing was she was teaching that once or twice a year you can go to a pagan temple and worship an idol so that you didn't get persecuted by the Romans. That was the context then. But she was saying you could do that and still be considered a faithful Christian as long as you went to church every Sunday. She was saying you can do both. And uh, the Christians in Thyatira, well, they were entirely happy with that. Uh, They were saying, look, we might not be perfect, but cut us a little bit of space here. It's not easy being a Christian in Thyatira, and we think we're doing okay. And yet, as you read on in the book, chapter 17, don't look look at it now, John presents Jezebel as a whore. 
as a prostitute. And she's riding on the back of a beast who is quite clearly the devil himself. And you see, John's point with these marvelous pictures is this. He's saying, you think what you're doing is okay, terribly tolerant and broad-minded. But let me tell you the reality. You're riding with the whore on the back of the devil. That's the reality. That's the true picture. Now, imagine for a moment, what do you think the atmosphere was like in the church at Thyatira when this message from the Lord Jesus was read out in church. Uh, everybody still comfortable, are they? Everybody dozing off, minds wandering? I don't think so. And you see, for some people, that imagery was so shocking, they changed their behavior. Now that is, I think, part of the power of symbols. We like to rationalize our sin, but symbols catch us off guard. They're designed to wake us up in areas where we've gone to sleep and become spiritually complacent. When you first see the symbols, you think, well, actually, this doesn't apply to me. You then read on, and you find, actually, it does. That is the power of John's method in this book. Well, let's move on and consider, secondly, the relevance of Revelation. Uh, specifically, is this book speaking to us today? <clears throat> well, um, from chapter 4 through to chapter 21, the symbols are all pointing to one thing. They're showing us a world that we don't see with our human eyes. It's a heavenly world, and we see God's temple, we see his palace, and we see his throne. And in that heavenly world, we also see all the Christians who have died. They've been taken to be with Jesus, and together with the angels, they're surrounding God and the Lord Jesus, and the Word of God, the Bible. And these deceased Christians and the angels, they're praising the Lord. And they're rejoicing because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why? Well, they know that Jesus is ruling over history. They know that one day Jesus will punish the devil and all his allies who persecute Christian people, and they know that one day Jesus will reward all Christians who persevere through to the end. And the point of the vision is this, that in heaven, God, Jesus Christ, and the word of God are right at the very center and the big question for us as we read it is, are those things at the center of our lives too? You see, they weren't at the center of the lives of some of the Christians in the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And God's purpose, you see, is that this vision of heaven should sort of break into us 
It should catch us off guard so that we ask ourselves, are God, Christ, and the Word of God at the centre of my life? You see, there's a little theme building up here. The testimony that we get in this book contradicts the testimony we get from the world, from the culture. Because the world puts itself at the centre of things and it dismisses Jesus Christ. But you see, this heavenly vision contradicts the world's perspective. You remember, I'm sure, that the Gospels tell us that a human court judged Jesus to be guilty and wrong and sent him to the cross. That was the world's verdict then, and it is still the world's verdict this morning. And you know, I think, in your own experience that the the world judges us Christians to be strange, weird, and misguided. But God's revelation of reality, as given in this book, overturns the judgments of the world. So, as we've just seen, that the, the human verdict on Jezebel was positive. Uh, the Christians at Thyatira were saying, you know, we can really listen to this. This woman has got a real speaking gift. It's, it's fascinating. But Christ's verdict was that she's an agent of the devil. And the church needed to be shocked about that. And that's a pattern, you see, we're going to see again and again throughout the book. So one more cross-reference. Turn with me, please, to chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds... You have a reputation of being alive. So there we are. There's a church with a terrific reputation. Uh, The people in the city of Sardis were saying, you are the true church. You're the only church worth going to in this city. Such lively services. Marvelous. That was the world's assessment. What did Christ say? End of verse 1. You are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Well, pretty obviously something was wrong. And uh, as you dig into that letter, one of the things they weren't doing is they weren't witnessing to other people about Christ. And Jesus says, if you're not doing that, you're actually as dead as the people around. So friends, as we we work through this most important book, may God give us the grace to examine ourselves in order to see where we truly stand. Are we alive spiritually? Or are we, in fact, as dead as a dodo? Something actually that we find again and again throughout the Bible. Uh, So there's a place, isn't there, where the Apostle Paul says... Examine yourselves. He's writing to Christians. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
test yourselves. That's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Because the point is that of all people, Christians should not be self-deceived. So can you see that this, this revelation of God's heavenly world is crucial for us to know the truth and to know that the world's assessment of reality is false. And the point is that without God's revelation, you and I are quite likely to follow the false claims of the world. And not only that, we'll actually feel quite comfortable doing it. So we need this revelation from heaven to break in to our hearts and minds. But more precisely, what is this revelation about? Well, let's put together chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 3. Just, just notice the connection. Interesting uh, little pattern here. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now skip down to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So, what is this revelation about? It sounds like it's about the future, doesn't it? About what must soon take place. The time is near. Actually, if we read this carefully, the context shows us that's not quite right. So glance down to verse 5, because it says this greeting is, is from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, who is the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now you see, that verse is saying that Jesus Christ is already the faithful witness. He's already the ruler of the kings of the earth. In other words, his kingdom has begun. Or look down to verse 6, next verse. What are we if we're Christians this morning? Well, it says, he has made us to be a kingdom. Now that's talking about today. It means that if you are a Christian, you are already in God's kingdom. Now, most of the time, we might not feel like anything very special is happening at all. But that's, you see, why John says at the end of verse 3, the time is near. Now, that is a deliberate echo of something that the Lord Jesus Christ said right at the very beginning of his ministry. I wonder if you can recall that from Mark chapter 1. You don't need to turn to it. But you remember, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus said... The kingdom of God is near. Now what Jesus was saying was that in him, the kingdom of God has arrived. But there was more to come, much more. I'll give you a family illustration. But when Gillian was expecting Alice, we could have said, Alice is near. That didn't mean Alice didn't 
already exist? No, it meant that Alice was already in existence in the womb, but there was more to come, and how thankful we are for it. And you see, what John is saying in verse 3 is that God has enabled him, for our benefit, to see the full significance of Christ's work of salvation in the past, in the present, and in the future. God has revealed the whole picture. Salvation is already here. It's available to everybody who turns to Christ in faith. It has got real consequences for our lives in the here and now, but there's more to come. The time is near. So are you following me? I hope you are. What have we said so far? Revelation is God's big picture. It shows us the full significance of the salvation that God has provided for you and me in the Lord Jesus and why it matters. It also shows us what's happening in heaven today with Jesus at the very center and how that reality totally contradicts the values of the world. And it shows us that although God's kingdom has started, there's much more to come. Well then, lastly, for the readers of this book, there is a remarkable reward Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, can you see that right at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, we are being challenged to make a personal response to the message. How? How are we to respond? Well, John says we should hear it. And obey it. So not just hear it, but take it to heart. That means we should value it. We should value what is said about Jesus Christ in this book. We should value it more than anything else and certainly more than the opinions of the world. That is the number one application of this whole book for you and me. So can I ask you, what do you value above all else? Is it family? Uh, Is it academic achievement? Is it your lifestyle? Is it a particular relationship? Is it your health? Or is it, is it God and his word? The human author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John, who, as you know, also wrote the fourth gospel. And in his gospel, John gives us, I think, a fascinating insight into the way that some people respond to Jesus. You don't need to look it up. I'll read it for you. But this is what he says in chapter 12, verse 42. He says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. Now, that sounds marvelous, doesn't it? Sounds terrific. The Jewish leaders believing in Jesus. Wow. Making progress here. Continue. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, why were they afraid of the Pharisees? 
Why were they keeping their faith under wraps? Verse 43, because they loved praise from men more than praise from God. Now that's very abstract, isn't it? What do we value more, I wonder? Praise from God or praise from men? Praise from God or praise from your family? Praise from God or praise from your employer? You see, the evidence that our faith is actually real is that in all we do, we want to show how great God is and not how great we are. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by valuing God and his word and taking it to heart. Now, please notice the reward that is promised to those who respond in the right way to this tremendous revelation so that they not only hear it, but also obey it. This is really, really important. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So when we hear and obey, we will be blessed. Actually, that blessing is the main point of verses 1 to 3. If you want to be blessed by God, you've got to hear, believe, and obey the word of the Lord. So it's good that we ask, well, what on earth is this blessing? You see, Christians toss around this word blessing like confetti at a wedding. Half the time they haven't a clue what it means. I don't know whether you knew this, but there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Seven, of course, being the number of completeness. And the first is right here at the beginning. The last two are at the very end of the book in chapter 22. Won't you please turn there with me now? Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Sounds very similar, doesn't it, to what we've just read at the very beginning of the book? But now look at the last blessing in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Now that's telling us, you see, that in the book of Revelation, blessing is going into the new heavens and the new earth with God and enjoying eternal life with him. In other words, it's what we call salvation. Salvation is the reward for those who hear believe and obey the teaching about Jesus in this book. They will go through the gates into the celestial city. Now, isn't that a remarkable thing? Is that what you want? It should be. Because, you see, friends, what happens if we, if we don't 
believe and obey what we hear about Christ in the book of Revelation. Well, look at the next verse, chapter 22, verse 15. And remember, this is Jesus speaking. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, when I first read that, I thought it was talking about pagans who never go anywhere near the doors of the church, and they're included in that. But in Revelation, immorality uh, is talking not so much about illicit sex. No, it's describing spiritual intercourse with other gods. It's talking about valuing things other than God more than him. That's what immorality is in the book of Revelation. So what happens when people in church who call themselves Christians don't hear and don't characteristically obey God's word because they value other things more? Well, verse 18. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book so he's talking to the church, because it's the church, isn't it, who will hear the words of prophecy in this book. Nobody else is going to read Revelation. They're the people who hear this book being read and explained. John says, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life, and in the holy city, which are described in this book. That sounds like you can lose your salvation, doesn't it? But in fact, what I think it's talking about are the people who thought they were saved when in truth they were not. They were self-deceived all the time. So, my dear friends, as we continue in our journey through Revelation, we've got to examine ourselves. If we're making any progress at all in godliness, we've got to pray for grace to continue. But can I say that if you have no desire to hear God's word and obey it, well, you really need to ask yourself whether you know God at all. And if that is the case, I, I do want to plead with you to get right with God before it's too late. And if you're not sure how to do that, please do come and talk to me or anyone in the team after the service. But as we close, let's return to where we started, that tremendous question we asked right at the beginning. Why go to church? Why is it actually necessary for us to meet together? Because most Christians, many Christians, actually don't think that it is. Think about worldliness. What is worldliness? Listen carefully. Worldliness is what any culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. You see, when the world hears what we believe and how we behave, they think we're really weird totally weird. 
One writer puts it rather well. He says, if you put a normal, sane person on an island populated by insane people, it's actually only a matter of time before they start to become like everybody else. And my dear friends, that is how it is when the Christian doesn't come to church but spends all of their time on the island of the world. If we spend all of our time with unbelievers, we're going to end up thinking that what they believe is normal and what the people believe at church is totally weird. And the purpose of church is so that you and I can come together and say, actually, we're not weird after all. What a relief. We really are normal. And those people out there who seem so normal are actually very strange because they're totally out of touch with reality. Now, how can we assure ourselves of that and not deceive ourselves into thinking we're normal when we're not? Well, by gathering together every week to marvel at God's big picture, to see the world, to see reality as it actually is, to be reminded that in heaven, in the control room of the universe, Jesus Christ is at the very center. To be reminded that even this morning, even this morning, Christians who have lived and died and been taken to be with Jesus are rejoicing because they know that one day Jesus will punish the devil and all his allies and that he will reward Christians who persevere faithfully all the way through to the end. And in order for you and I to respond rightly to God's big picture, I need you to help me, and you need me to help you. And that's why we come to church. We come to church to hear God's wisdom and to be reminded how foolish the wisdom of the world actually is. And so may God give you and I grace to hear, to want to hear, and to obey. Let's pray. Father, cause us to want to hear your word, to believe it, to value it, and to obey it, so that we might receive your blessing of salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name.